Welcome to Securiosity for another week. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about some events we have coming later this year. If you have been to an SNG event, you know that we're not your typical cybersecurity conference. So we are taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we'll be hosting New York Cyber Week in New York City. The week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. Register now to join 60-plus community events that will be held around the Big Apple. And don't forget, we'll have our own event, New York Cyber Talks, in the middle of the week. For more information on what we have planned, check out NewYorkCyberWeek.com. That's NYCyberWeek.com. Or, as always, check out Cyberscoop.com. All right, let's go. Welcome to another episode of Securiosity. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready for another week of cybersecurity news. A busy week it was, all of our usual characters making an appearance. We have Facebook fails, ransomware attacks, APT groups, bad phishing scams, you know, sticking to the hits. Nothing but hits this week. Uh, also, in our interview, we are talking to Jonas Gillenswan, fantastic Scandinavian last name. A lot of Scandinavia in this episode. Uh, Jonas is the CEO of SyncDog. His company works uh, with security when it comes to your mobile device, and he'll tell us how he differentiates himself from the rest of the crowd in the EMM and MDM space. Also, get ready to talk about a company that I'm awfully familiar with, getting a nice round of funding. But first, let's recap the news this week. Newark Hydro, one of the world's top aluminum producers, had to halt processing at multiple plants after its IT systems were hit with ransomware early on Tuesday. The aluminum giant said it switched to manual code inside several plants to contain the attack. Norway's computer specialists were developed to analyze the ransomware, a strain known as Gaga, that emerged in January. So Greg, what do we know about this? So it was really interesting to watch because it was an example of how things can go right in the face of them going wrong. I think this company did a good job of being very, very transparent with what was going on. I think there were numerous press conferences that the the company held, and as well as internally, they relied on a number of backups, uh, went straight to the backups, separated everything they could from their actual plants and made sure that while the business was totally down, that the plants kept going and that they were in a mode where customers could continue getting their orders and they are still going through those backups. And uh, the most important thing, it looks like they will not have to pay uh, the ransom at all on this. Well, I, I shouldn't say it that way. Not that they won't have to pay the ransom, they're choosing not to pay the ransom, which we know time and time again, that we've heard stories of whether it's cities, companies paying ransoms and not getting their data back. So it's very nice to see that they're relying on their backups, they're following their protocols, they're following their their backup plans, they have cyber insurance, and they're you know trying to press forward despite the fact that they look to be pretty heavily hit. If this had happened in the US, would we have known this fast? I think we would have known this fast only okay. because news travels so fast. And it's funny that you say that, but even though this company is based in Norway, uh, the CFO at one of the press conferences said the infection looks like it started in the US. And this company is based in Norway, but they have uh, aluminum remelting facilities, I believe they're called, based in Kentucky and Texas. And I think they actually have some offices in Baltimore too. So okay. I don't know if they've actually said where uh, the infection started in the US. But um, I think part of the reason that we knew so fast is because uh, part of it was based in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. systems were down because the entire company's business unit were down. So I think uh, part of the reason that we knew so fast is they had some operations going in the U.S. Okay. We've seen this time and time again where people get hit and they don't know what to do and they kind of run around with their, their hair on fire. Um, they... This company had their ducks in a row. They were prepared for this and they've done all they can in the face of adversity. So a lesson to be learned in how to do this right. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of lessons learned, to prepare the U.S. for the 2020 election and Europe for its parliamentary votes this year, DHS officials are headed to Europe to talk about election security. 
Chris Krebs, head of DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, told us earlier this week that what he's doing is taking some of the lessons from 2016 and 2018, packaging them together, and doing a bit of a roadshow. He was quoted as saying in a story from Arshan Lingus, I know what the Russians did in 2016. I know what they tried to do in 2018, but I don't know what they're going to do in 2020. But I guarantee you the Russians are road testing it right now in certain spaces in Europe. Jen, do you think this is a good idea for DHS to do? So on the surface, it seems like just a bad use of time. But if they're going into Europe to talk to you know, their election security and they get to monitor um, elections there and see what they're doing, I would say that that's a good use of time. But if we're just sharing our information from the last two elections and then they're implementing our maybe fixes or strategy we had, it's just giving um, the Russians more practice um, to do it better. So it's it's good in that we are monitoring Europe, but if we're not, then it seems like a waste. Right. Well, I think this, you know, you bring up the point of, of going, you know, over there and, you know, showing our cards a little bit. But I think that that is just really the reality of the situation. Like this is going to be tit for tat for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So uh, I, I'm not really sure we have an answer to that, but I think that it's a good idea to get over there. And especially with the comment that the Russians are road testing it right now. I mean, you can bet the DHS officials are going to be in Ukraine and they're going to be watching and monitoring and, and seeing what's going on there. I mean, Ukraine has been a test bed for a lot of what Russia has been doing when it comes to, you know, digital attacks. So uh, better to see it on the ground and sort of monitor it from Virginia, I would guess to, ultimately see how to respond to it on the ground in case that it does happen again. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. If we get to monitor and see what's happening, then I'm all for it. So the notorious Pegasus spyware made by Israeli vendor NSO Group was used to target the widow of slain Mexican journalist, researcher said on Wednesday. Days after her husband was killed in May 2017, the widow received malicious text messages Analysts from Toronto-based Citizen Labs said she didn't click the links, but the revelation adds to public scrutiny of NSO Group, which says it heavily vets the use of its products and investigates any abuses of them. So, Greg, do you think there is an NSO Group vetting process here? I don't believe it at all. I just, I, I really don't, because we've seen this time and time again. Their tools show up in places where governments are hostile to their populations. And if the governments are hostile to their populations, this is going to just be another tool in the toolbox to express that hostility. Like it's uh, no, I, I, I really just don't believe them at all. They sell their tools and then they sort of go, okay, well, it's a tool. If you're going to use it for bad, that's not on us. We don't have the jurisdiction to determine how you use that tool. But time and time again, you find NSO group is attached to these stories where it is sort of like a human rights violation whether it is in Mexico, whether it's in the Emirates. I mean, this is not something that I feel they really care a lot about. I just I just don't see it. That That's not the way this these companies operate, and it's not the way NSO Group has uh, ever operated. So no, I, I don't believe them at all. I mean, it, it's, she didn't click on the links. It's terrible, like emotionally. It could have ended a lot worse right. for, for her, obviously obviously could have ended uh, a lot worse for her. But it also goes to show that once these tools are, are turned over, it's really up to the governments using them to use them in a manner that, you know, kind of toes the line between, you know, counter surveillance or counterintelligence or using it to support uh, a mission that, you know, could ultimately be charged as good or using it to prey upon people in a different way and using it to targo the widow, widow of a slain Mexican journalist who I believe is also being watched with this software. It, it's not great. It's just not a great, not really a great look yeah. at all. So Tenable CEO Amit Yuran spoke with CyberScoop out at RSA and he did not mince words about where he thought hype-driven vendor offerings had gotten in the industry. He told us it's a lot of smoke and mirrors that is superfluous to tackling the security basics that hackers all too often exploit. He told us it's an industry that has fed and continues to feed to a large extent off of fear mongering. 
He also gave his two cents on value or lack thereof of attributing cyber operations to a given threat group. Jen, we've talked about this a lot, but interesting remarks coming from a company head who is trying to sell some of these products. I imagine, you know, if I put myself in his shoes, I imagine that it's sort of annoying to have, um, you know, vendors pop up with solutions that supposedly or do tackle the smoke and mirrors, if you will. But it's just, you know, in comparison to people who have like a legit product that are legitimately protecting something, you know, I just imagine it's frustrating. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is frustrating. And I look at it through the lens of what we were talking about in past episodes that this is a really, really crowded marketplace. So I imagine, you know, you're I mean, you're on the CEO of a company, Tenable, that actually has some tools that have been used pretty widely uh, in InfoSec. And you walk among the expo floor and you see some of these tools and you hear some of these pitches and you get word of things because, you know, you're a dutiful CEO and you just got to shake your head to go, you know, what the hell happened? Like, what are we doing right now? So, uh, look, Amit's never been one to mince words. So good on him for saying, you know, what is on his mind. I uh, agree a lot with what he had to say there. It's a mess. It's a crowded field. And I don't blame any CISO that sort of throws their hands up and is like, I don't know what to do with you guys when any of these products come out onto the market and I'm going to ignore it all. But then again, Amit's going to be pissed off by that because he's trying to sell these products and he wants to stand up for the the products that he sells. He believes in the products that he sells. And, you know, it makes his job that much harder to sell against people that he knows are dealing in snake oil. Right. Because all it really takes is one person to sell something that is snake oil. It just taints everybody else that's doing something legitimate. Right. I mean, just think about it when we think of, I don't know, pick a... a, a thing that's hot right now. Like, you know, let's look at some company that talks about behavioral analytics and then it come to find out that other companies want to trumpet that too. But the first company that trumpeted that, their product kind of stinks. Well, now what what are we really talking about? Do we even need behavioral analytics? Like that's obviously just a hypothetical, but I'm sure that there's four or five other features or stuff that's been sold out there that CEOs that have been attached to these bigger companies have gone, this isn't anything. Like our products are our products. They're, they're still good. You, you still should pay attention to us, but now it's harder because you have this entire mess and things are just worse off than ever before. So I get his frustration there. I sort of think we just need more companies and, and I guess they're consulting firms that are really good at testing products and sort of stitching everything together um, and then consulting back to companies like this is what good cyber hygiene looks like and, and these are the products to use and this is how they work together and then here's some alternatives if you you know for whatever reason don't like that particular product but i guess i you know at that same time a lot of people don't like consultants per se and i don't know it's just a, it's a tough it's a tough thing to solve there's just so much out there it absolutely is and jen i think we should get to our next story because they, that works part and parcel with what uh we're talking about we can continue this conversation after we talk about this other story that we ran this week. So cybersecurity isn't all threat hunting and fancy tools. Most of what security bosses are doing to protect their enterprises is rooted in answering metonymous questions about the cyber readiness. Private sector surveys include thousands of arcane questions meant to elicit information about how firms use encryption, require authentication, and otherwise protect sensitive data. Yet, in order to better assess third-party risk, companies now are moving toward a shared assessment questionnaire mythology. With that strategy, a company answers one questionnaire about their data protection strategies, and the results are shared throughout the wider industry. That way, a single company only needs to go through the process once, rather than dedicating a team of employees to work full-time at answering these surveys. A mind-numbing, dull task that can take hours to complete. So, how do you think this changes how CISOs protect their enterprises? So going back to what you were talking about, how we measure or how CISOs measure yeah. you know, what really does protect stuff, this is how they're doing it. I mean, we could talk about all of those behavioral analytics and AI and machine learning, but at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is these like longstanding questionnaires that these companies that want to do business with 
other companies looking to protect their data, they have to go through this checklist thing. And that checklist thing has been around for a while, but now it's getting to a point where, you know, you're moving to the shared assessment thing where it's almost like, like word of mouth, where it's, okay, you're going to come through this test and you're going to do it once. And the results of that test are going to be roped into this wider system that the entire industry is going to be able to look at. And what I'm what that is, is basically these companies that have like scorecards or, or dashboards that examine some of the other products that are out on the market. And that is serving to cut down on a lot of this monotony. As If you can just... If, I can just look up on some scorecard or some website, for instance, I'm not picking on their products, but let's say Symantec versus McAfee. If I you know, am looking at a scorecard and I can go, okay, I don't have to test this. This company tested this and it says Symantec beats McAfee here, but McAfee beats Symantec on, on this note. I, I can just move forward with my day instead of, you know, pulling in some risk assessment guy or some consultant and I can just move forward. I can free up man hours and I can get to actually protecting my assets. So it's just the way that things are moving. And I think it is moving forward to the point where all of those sales pitches that drive Amit and other CISOs and CEOs nuts are just going to move by the wayside. Sure. But I I mean, I think there's also something to be said for, the way people implement products. I mean, just because you read that one is better than the other doesn't mean that you're going to install it right or use it right. And so, I mean, I think that's always a question too. Right. No, absolutely. And then that is something that is beholden to the CISO inside the company. I mean, there's no product in the world that is necessarily going to fix that. I mean, that that's a workforce issue and that's a training issue. So right. that's definitely something that scissors have to wrestle with as well. So, you, you know, you're only going to be able to go so far with, with that. Um, but at the same time, I think that scissors would rather pay attention to that stuff instead of having to do all of these large questionnaires and really focus on how to protect things internally, because I would feel like that's the most important part of their job. Like not assessing the risk. Like obviously that's going to be something that they're going to be involved with with the CFO or the chief risk officer or whatever, but they're the chief information security officer. And I would say the bullet under that job title is protect the information of the company. So I would think that they would want to do that and talk to their staff and train them up internally to do that instead of going, oh, I'm going to make sure that this chart or this spreadsheet checks off all the boxes related to NIST or Sarbanes-Oxley or whatever mandate that you have to do. But who who should be in charge of something like that? Because I kind of feel like, you know, every day, and I don't know the statistics around this, but every day, you know, some number of cybersecurity solutions are, you know, go out onto the market. Like who's... Who could you really put in charge of verifying and stringing together things to see like this is the most secure way you can do things by using, you know, XYZ products in this way? I mean, it just doesn't seem like I can't. I mean, if I'm Wells Fargo, I can't just rely on that Bank of America made the right decisions and I should just copy what they did. Right. I talked about that a little at RSA with with, – just some idle conversation that I was having that no matter what these products are, uh, every enterprise is going to think of themselves as a unique little snowflake. Of course. You're never going to be able to rely on what your competitors or your peers or somebody in the same sector as you is doing. But at the same time, if you're really assessing it based on a number of variables that are same across the board, no matter what, which I think is what a lot of these scorecards do, it's a lot easier to just pop up in the scorecard and go, okay, this fits with what I'm trying to do with compliance more so than calling up PricewaterhouseCooper or Accenture and having right. a consultant come in and do this hours of work. Like whatever makes the job easier I think is what CISOs are going to rely on more and more. So that's, you know, you asked who are people going to rely on to really check this stuff? I think that you're starting to see more and more people relied on this shared assessment and these security scorecard companies. 
So switching gears now for online miscreants, the Mirai botnet is the gift that keeps on giving. The botnet that launched the most powerful DDoS attack on record in 2016 has yet another variant with a new batch of exploits, according to Palo Alto Networks. With the big bandwidth of enterprises in its sights, the Mirai offshoot could give the botnet greater firepower to orchestrate DDoS attacks, according to Palo Alto's Unit 42. It's clear what owners of these vulnerable routers, internet-connected cameras, and other gear have to do, either patch their devices or get them off the network. Jen, are you surprised we're still talking about Mirai? No, I'm not. I'm actually surprised we're still talking about people needing to patch routers. I'm actually, am I with you? I I don't know. I I guess I am and I'm not surprised only because this, when it comes to DDoS and it comes to protecting your network in terms of traffic, like Mirai has been public enemy number one since that attack in 2016. So I feel like for CISOs and people that are watching over their enterprise, be like, okay, let's just make sure that this this doesn't happen. Let's make sure that our routers are patched against this. I'm sure there are plenty of companies that can help us. Oh, do we have cameras on our buildings? Like, where are the IoT devices on our networks? Let's patch them. Let's figure out a way to make sure that they're not co-opted into the network. Like, this seems to be something that I feel like is almost basic at this point. And yet, it seems not to be because there are other criminals out there looking to build on top of it and to launch more and more attacks. Right. I mean, I just, again, I, I just wonder if we were patching our routers, devices, making sure our internet connected cameras, whatever it is we have um, protected, you know, this wouldn't be much of a conversation. And I, and I guess we're just still not doing the basics. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, uh, Unfortunately, it's just it's I I uh, sigh heavily because I I want those basics to happen, and I'm sure scissors do, but it's just not happening. So talking about more um, not being secure. So just new over the past few hours, Facebook plans to notify hundreds of millions of users that their passwords were in an insecure format that could have allowed company employees to access and view login credentials. An internal investigation has found that between 200 million and 600 million Facebook users may have had their passwords stored in plain text and searchable by more than 20,000 employees. There's no evidence anyone outside Facebook viewed these passwords, the company said in a statement Thursday, adding there's also nothing to indicate company employees improperly accessed the information. So, yay, Facebook. What do you think, Greg? So... uh Look, I know this is another grand air and the internet seems to be like, oh, look, Facebook screwed up again. But of (laughs) all the things that we've talked about when it comes to Facebook, uh, this seems like it's not the worst thing in the world. Like, don't get me wrong, because of the scale of the company and the amount of passwords and everything being stored in plain text and the access there, it's pretty bad. This isn't Cambridge Analytica part two. This isn't a bug that allows people to gain uh, login tokens, you know, the same way that that bug happened a couple months ago. This is, you know, an internal thing that was caught. It doesn't look like it was abused and um, Facebook can move forward. So I know we and the greater community, the greater tech community likes to spend time lashing out at Facebook over this, but I just don't think that this is that big of a deal. No. And I think, you know, for a lot of reasons, one, it's Facebook, right? There's not, there's not much you're going to find in my Facebook account that isn't already somehow public from some other hack that Facebook had, or just because it's Facebook. Um, and just the virtue of it being a social network. Um, and, and I would still hope that people are not using the same password and username for Facebook that using for other things. Um, I'd like to think people don't do that anymore. Um, oh, no, they still do. <laughs> they're in public. So I'm, I'm not sure this is like that big of news, although I kind of feel like this is going to be big news on like the morning talk shows. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You're definitely going to see some stuff just because it's it's going to be like a little blip morning on like Good Morning America or Today or something like that, just because it's Facebook. But look, like you were saying, 
Facebook already has all the data they would need anyway. Why would they need to go into right. your yeah. Facebook account with plain text passwords? They, they don't need it. They can access the data that's on your Facebook page through their own legal means. And God forbid an employee did abuse this and they found out about it. I would think that that person at the very least would be fired if not turned over to police because, you know, that's, I would imagine that that's still illegal because that that's not the way that you're supposed to store those passwords. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this, I would not be surprised if this was tied to some sort of internal audit and word got out to Brian Krebs because Brian Krebs was the uh, initial person or the initial journalist that reported this story. But this smells of like some kind of internal audit, like some kind of GDPR audit almost, which good on Facebook for trying to do that. So it's a shame that they messed it up so much that they stored that many plain text passwords. But at the same time, it doesn't look like it was abused. So uh, I, I think we can focus on one of the 10 other things that Facebook does wrong that deserve the public scorn for. Poor Facebook. So to actual criminal behavior, Vietnam's most capable hacking group has ramped up targeting of the global car industry. FireEye has seen spear phishing attempts on five to 10 organizations in the industry since February. The Southeastern Asian country is trying to develop a domestic car industry and the hacking group known as APT32 has data gathering skills that could come in handy. We also talked to Silence about it and they've seen similar behavior telling us the group is really getting very creative in the way that they try to bundle their malware together and deploy their attacks, according to Silence's Tom Bonner. Jen, corporate espionage, all the rage in Vietnam. I mean, I think that's kind of exciting. So how exactly um, is this helping them grow a domestic car industry? So what is happening is all of the big car makers that you and I know, the Toyota, Volkswagen, uh, General Motors, they all do business in Asia like they do business everywhere else. But Vietnam is trying to start their own car company, which I believe is backed by the country itself. Oh, interesting. So they're making a really, really big push. I believe that they've actually signed on David Beckham to do some type of endorsement deal for the car. So um, if it's a nationalized, semi-nationalized uh, company, they are the, the Vietnamese government looks to be using their um, hacking teams to try to pop the other companies to figure out you know business plans. It, it's Again, corporate espionage. So that's the way that this is going forward. We talked to some of the car companies and the car companies acknowledged that uh, they're aware of the threats, but obviously wouldn't say anything else, which is interesting because then it leads me to believe that it is corporate espionage and they don't want to try to have any other information out there on it that's than what's already out there. So um, yeah, really, really interesting story um, that, it's not just all about nation state geopolitics. Sometimes it's, you know, related to uh, the economic interests of your, of your country. So I wonder what kind of car they're going to copy. I wonder if they're going to get us a, um, I guess he's got a phantom drop head um, coupe, which is a Rolls Royce. I wonder if that's what they're going to. Yeah, uh, that would be really, really interesting. The company is called VinFast. VinFast is testing cars that look to be like they're called Lux. I want to say that they're closer to Hondas than they are. Yeah, it looks more of a, yeah. Like I'm looking at an okay. SUV right now and it looks like, like if you remember the old Suzuki Grand Vitaras, they look like that. But looking on their Wikipedia page too, like General Motors announced a partnership with them. Um, so it's really, really interesting to note that General Motors talked to us and they said they're aware of the threats, but wouldn't say any more. Um, their models are based on previous BMW models. So it's clear that they're trying to you know, ramp up and dive fully into the automotive market in Vietnam. So uh, yeah, really, really interesting stuff there. Well. I just looked at their the photos of their cars, and I will say that it's not anything I would purchase. So there's that. <laughs> okay, you are strictly out <laughs> on Vietnamese automobiles. Noted. 
I am. Yeah, I, I like American muscle cars. None of them look like an American muscle car. So, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, more than six months after U.S. prosecutors announced the arrest of three accused hackers affiliated with sophisticated criminal hacking group Flashpoint, Flashpoint researchers has new evidence the billion-dollar crime ring is still active. Flashpoint uncovered a new strain of malicious software called SQL Rat, which is spread via phishing emails by the Fin7 group. The strain is especially difficult for investigators to detect because it doesn't leave behind much evidence. So, Greg, you were right. You said they were going to go back. Yeah, uh, Fin7, uh, not going uh, away at all. Uh, there are, you know, th- this malware just works too well, I guess. Um, so the criminal yes. are, are, you know, the criminal groups keep popping up. They keep finding this malware. And they keep going after banks and financial institutions. And I, I again, we, we talked about it. They just were not going to stop. So um, Fin7 always going to be here, despite the fact that there were some arrests earlier this year. And doesn't look to deter anybody <laughs> that the banks keep getting hacked and Fin7 stays alive. Interesting. So speaking of financial institutions and money funding. Um, the one funding note this week, uh, longtime listeners will remember NS8. We talked to NS8 last year at Black Hat. Earlier this week, NS8 announced their platform that combats online fraud, uh, completed a $26 million round of funding led by Edison Partners, Source and Ventures, and Lytical Ventures. Also involved are TDF Ventures, HANA Ventures, and others. Uh, Jen, looks like uh, the company keeps growing. The more and more e-commerce that we see, the more and more Magecart that we see, uh, it's not surprising that NSA would be a beneficiary of some funding. Yeah, I know. This is really exciting. This is one of our Mach 37 um, accelerator companies um, from from years ago. So just really exciting to see one of our, our little babies grow and grow significantly. Yeah. So... I mean, what do you think that this means going forward? Do you think that this money is just boosting staffing, marketing? Do you think you're going to see new products? Can you talk to that? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. So I so I won't say that I that I have great inside knowledge here, um, you know, to share. But you know, certainly they've already have um, a robust product set. So I think we're going to see um, an expansion of sales and marketing. Great. Hey, uh, I bet $26 million will go uh, a long, long way to um, expanding that customer base. Yeah, congrats to Adam and his team. So from one company funded by Virginia to one headquartered in Virginia to our interview with SyncDog. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Jonas Gillensvon, the CEO of SyncDog. Jonas, thanks for joining us today. So to start off, talk to us about what exactly SickDog does. We are trying to solve mobile security and uh, BYOD um, scenario in a new fashion. Uh, We're trying to change the dynamics from securing the device to securing the data. Um, The way, you know, mobile phones and mobile devices have changed from being an expensive equipment now to a commodity you can buy down in a grocery store in a local 7-Eleven. The value of the physical device has really diminished, and people are finally realizing that the value of it is the business data you put on that, those devices, and creating a secure petition, a secure application you put on those devices, making sure that data stays secure on the device, gets to and from the device, secure, and you have the accountability you need from a, from a business standpoint. Um, so let's back up a second here. How did you get into cybersecurity, and what made you start SyncDog? Uh, I've been in mobility since the late 90s, uh, so it's really just been an evolution from, you know, from generation to generation. started at pre-Blackberry days and, you know, the demand and Blackberry moved over to iPhones and Androids and it's just been a natural evolution to where we are today. What kind of phone do you carry? I have both an Android and an iPhone. Okay. So you're not like a holder on to the Blackberry? Oh God, no. Okay. no. I gave that up a long time ago. And you moved uh, on? Yes. I have. We were big Blackberries client and customer and developer for many, many years, 10, 12 years, but uh, we had to give up and the market landscape changed. I still miss my Blackberry. I do. Yeah, the Blackberry Pro was fun. <laughs> that was a good one. So, my favorite. 
So when it comes to iOS and Android, you know, you you said your product really focuses on protecting the data, but when it comes to the actual devices, uh, is there any sort of difference that you see when it comes to security? I mean, we all hear the stories about iOS being better because it's a little bit more walled off, but do you, what are the differences that you see there? What are the pros and cons with each operating system? I think it's a never-ending battle. It really depends on who you talk to. I mean, I can give you several people who will tell you that Android is going to be more secure than iOS is going to be all day long, and I can find people that will give you a completely opposite story about it. Um, I think the biggest problem with Android is really that it's, you have so many different flavors and old versions of it, and Android is really secure if you keep up to date and you keep on a later version. Um, iOS clearly does a much job, better job of penetrating with updates. I mean, you can be you know, a week out and you have 90% plus penetration on the latest OS. Um, but, you know, overall, you know, I can give you arguments on both sides. Um, I don't think there's really anything from a fundamental standpoint that makes iOS better versus Android today. So, I mean, data privacy continues to be a big issue. And is there anything that we've done from like, the government level to help protect my data online? Uh, data online, you know, protection and regulation is always a sensitive issue. I mean, regulation has been around for a long time. Um, the biggest problem I think we're suffering from there is actually enforcing regulations and enforcing the fines. As long as fines and regulations are arbitrary and selective, you're not going to get anyone really taking it um, seriously enough. Um, I think one of the first changes we've seen in many years is going to be the GDPR right now, where you have a mandatory fine, etc. I think those things, once they start being enforced, you're going to start seeing some more changes and people taking security and regulations more seriously. And I think that would be probably something that would be beneficial for other regulations that would happen to the U.S. as well. So you said you know you do a lot with helping enterprises work through their security problems when it comes to mobility. As the need for mobile devices continues to grow inside the workplace, what are some examples of what companies can do to better secure their employees and the data that they're dealing with upon all their devices? The way we're looking at that is, you know, most people typically secure the device. They make it very hard for people to utilize it for device functionality, getting into the devices. Traditionally, people have deployed EMM and MDMs. And fundamentally, you know, the theory of securing the device may have some value to it, but we all have families and kids and things like that. And, you know, I know my kids play Angry Birds on my phone, and the best way of getting them quiet at dinner is giving them the phones that they can play with. So you have, you have an enhanced security in the device that's, you know, jeopardized by every single family member around you and other people around you. So as long as, you know, employees and end users find ways around functionalities in the device in order to make them useful, uh, security will always suffer. Um, the way we solve that is making sure that we, our secure applications stay separate from the rest of the environment and they can log in and they can use the devices on a daily basis without the enhanced password and, and functionalities that's very limited on the device side. So we let them basically leave the device side separately, let them use it the way they want to and then when they go into the work partition that part of the device is secured and, and accounted for. So sort of given that work partition, and you mentioned you know, letting your kids play Angry Birds or some other game on your phone, is there any chance of something bad happening at that point of, you know, one of my nieces having my phone and, you know, being able to access my work email, other work programs, in addition to everything else? Uh, they, they don't have access to the work partition, and it's, separately, it's a separate password username to get into. It's, it's, it's completely isolated from the device side and the device functionality when it comes to the standard accounts to get in there. Okay, so, so this is very, like, so this is different than, like, your typical, I can't even think of what my company uses, but, like, your good technology, this is... Explains what are the differences. It's very similar. Um, good technology has been around for a long time. It's a little bit older. Um, we've had the ability to learn from their mistakes and learn from BlackBerry's mistakes when in, you know from the past history. But in theory, you know, it's very similar from a you know, conceptual standpoint. Uh, what Good has done is it's taken a regular email and PIM client and made that an application, and they have separate applications mm -hmm. outside of that on the on the device. Uh, we're taking a more holistic approach where we have one workspace and we have all those applications in one side, inside one workspace. We can have 10, 15, 20 applications in one workspace. 
So when you enter into that workspace, you go into your work environment and you have everything in one place. Um, so it makes, it makes it much more holistic and it's easier to jump from application to applications and share data in a much more secure fashion than you would do when you have multiple applications spread out of the device. So I'm essentially, so on my iPhone, I'm essentially entering in like one, two, three, four, five, six to get into my work stuff and two, three, four, five, six, seven to get into my personal stuff. Uh, I'm getting a handshake, no. If you secure it, never use those passwords. I'm sure there's people that use the passwords like that. I use that on I use similar simplistic password on my device side, but once we start talking about the, the workspace side, we have much more complex. Sure. Um, yeah. But you know that's the benefit. I mean, you can have one, two, three, four as your password to the device. Uh, you still don't jeopardize the you know secure partition and the data from your from your employer at that point. And if I can jump in, that's kind of the bigger difference of what we're trying to bring to the market is that. The traditional approach is not like goods doing, but like the air watches and the mobile arms, the traditional MDMs, as Jonas was saying, they protect the device. So you're forcing up the password restrictions that has to be, you know, eight characters of all different types of things just for somebody to get in and check check in for an airline or an air flight or show a picture of their kids. Our philosophy is if you're doing those simple non-work related type of things, let your password be one, two, three, four. But when it's time to access sensitive data, corporate data, that's where you want to enforce, you know, the, the strict uh, protocols around uh, passwords and other type of security measures. So we separate those two activities: personal use and corporate use, and try to make it a, a much more simplistic environment for the personal use, and then a much more locked down environment for the corporate use, so everybody's protected. So our listeners aren't losing their minds whenever they're listening. Can you introduce yourself as well? Absolutely. This is uh, Brian Eggenrider. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer for SyncDog. So as workforce mobility continues to be more important globally, what trends do you see that are driving companies to promote security and usability? Because you had talked about it being more holistic with what you're doing, allowing people to use those applications no matter where they are, just signing into a system and using that. Is that a trend across the board or is that something that you feel that you've pioneered? I think, you know, the market has changed in the last 18 to 24 months where people start talking more about data protection versus device protection. Um, We've been out there for a couple of years trying to, you know, push that message ourselves, but I think analysts and and other security experts has really changed the way they talk about data protection and, and security on mobile devices in the last 18 to 24 months. So talk to me a little bit more about the difference that you're seeing between what you're doing and the MDM and EMM management spaces, because I feel like they all get thrown out there. And what besides just, okay, some people secure the device and then we secure the data. What else are the differences that you're seeing there? There's a lot of misconceptions of biomobile security. A lot of people... Um, a lot of it has to do with marketing and the messaging that has been put out by the existing vendors on the EMM and MDM side uh, for years. Um, it's a natural step for them, you know, going from managing a device and then trying to do security. But traditional security on, in that environment has been you're putting some, pa- you know, complex password at different levels of password in the device. Uh, you can move on and you can put some VPN connections on the device or you can take it a step further, do man, where you do application management on each one of those applications, but it's very piecemeal each one of those things. Uh, so securing one application is great, and you know, but what's happened in the market is people have moved past that one single app, people now have multiple apps, and the requirement of securing uh, the data in transit between those apps and securing the data to and from, de- from the device, those things have really brought up you know, the level of security requirements that a typical EMM and MDM has currently provided in the past. Uh, th- there's a space for them in the market as well. Uh, you know, I don't think they're going to go away. And you know, there's a lot of corporate devices out there, and those devices need to be accounted for when it comes to asset management and you know, device management as so as a part of that side. But when it comes to pure data protection, uh, it's, a, it's a different step on it. And definitely, you're going to have data and applications working together. Uh, you know, if you look look at your office when you go and sit in front of your laptop or your desktop, you know. You log in and you have 5, 10, 15 different apps you use on a day-by-day basis and you expect those to work together in a holistic environment. You know, you take your file and you drag it to your desktop and you, you open it in a different application and 
you don't have to think about that workflow. Uh, you don't have to think about security because all of that exists in that one world. It's not as easy on the, you know, on existing iOS and Android devices to actually take data from one application to the next application and do it securely. And that's really where the separate workspace comes comes very handy because you build that environment. We can build in the workflow you used to use it in front of your existing desktop and laptop. And, and I think the the employees and the employees demands are changing, especially over the last couple of years, as more and more millennials are coming into the market. They're questioning, you know, why am I carrying one device for work and then my personal device for my personal use is just somewhat illogical. And in the past, you know, people would issue, you know, roll out these MDM profiles on a corporate-owned device and it was a perk. You're like, hey, you know, join this company, we're going to give you a brand new iPhone 7. The problem is companies are still giving out iPhone 7s and people are carrying around their iPhone 10 as a personal device and it's no longer a perk, it's actually a, a burden. It's a detriment, yeah, right. It is. So, um, so I think the demands of the market are changing. They're saying, you know, this is just illogical, why do we have to do this? And then you roll in the other concept of third-party workers and contractors. That's a huge issue for a lot of companies is how do you get data on those to those people without treating them like a, a full-blown employee and that's what most companies do. They set them up as an employee in the HR system. Pardon me. And then they you know, will buy a device for them, let them use that device for the time and then they're trying to get the device back. But why not just let them use their own device in a very secure fashion by using a solution like Synctom? And we see some of that separation even on the, uh, on the voice side now when Android has dual SIMs and iOS now support virtual eSIMs, etc. So even, even on the device side when it comes to the voice, you can now have separation between work and private. So I think you know, it's a natural next step, like Brian says, where we can have that separation and use one device for both functions. How do you see a product like this working in specialized fields like government if you have somebody that... I don't know, is out with a, a, a tablet of some sort out in the wild checking, I don't know, like water quality, or you have somebody in healthcare that's using an iPad to do that stuff. Does it change or, or is it the same sort of idea that it's just data is data and there's really no other specialized things outside of the regulations that each sector has to follow? Well, I think the answer is both. I mean, it, you know, data is data and it should always be treated that way. Make sure you're protecting sensitive corporate PII type of data no matter where it is. It should be any device, you know, any data, but always secure. And that's, in fact, what our motto is. But we do see some specialized cases that are really interesting. One of our customers is a utility company. And if you picture these major outages and major storms that you, that you see and, and the, you know, the sister utilities will send in trucks, the traditional approach was... You know, these utilities have all this data in, in um, electronic format and they're dropping it down to, to paper and they're setting up you know, centralized spots where everybody rolls in and they're handing out paper trying to coordinate where everybody's going and how to fix things. But now with SyncDog, they just put it into you know, one of our file formats or, or one of our file, uh, uh, file share type of capabilities. As the crews are rolling in town, they download the you know, utility emergency response app and it's branded to what they're doing and they have all the information they need. They can send information of what capabilities they have, what equipment they have on the truck, and it's this coordinated effort as people roll into town. You don't have to have these centralized meets. They can go right to where they're supposed to be. And the utilities get much better data on how to inform their customers on the outages. So you see things like that, and we have you know, capabilities for you know, kind of the, the more secretive aspects of the government work where you know, if, if somebody's held to gunpoint and says, hey, you know, get it, you know, use the password of your phone, you can actually set up a a false password that immediately erases all the sensitive data and it just looks like a personal phone. So we've got little neat things like that that are specific to individual verticals and, and sectors, but you know, so we're trying to take all that into account, but again, it rolls back to make sure that data is safe no matter what device they're accessing it on. So what advice do you have for the, the general consumer to make them more secure on their mobile devices and their tablets? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> follow your admins and employers' instructions. Try to avoid working around the rules and uh, make them, you know, find the right solution that works for you. Uh, there are solutions out there that can help them through the work side that allows them to have a personal productive device as well. So I was 100% that person who was mad about having a work device, a Blackberry. Um, and my own phone, and so I managed to convince um, the guy at Verizon to forward my personal number to my work phone, 
Um, and then I put on a contraband app to have my personal email also on the BlackBerry. So I was that person that like created the reason why <laughs> your I, so your enterprise <laughs> IT people were tearing their hair out at that that time. But it, it's a very common way of doing it. I mean, right. you see it in every company today. I mean, there's very few cases where you where you have the where you don't have shadow IT like everyone's talking about. You know, your behavior is a very common behavior. Oh, for sure. And, <laughs> and I told everyone how to do it. <laughs> uh, but it's not needed anymore. Right. I mean, you, you can have that true life and work experience that you need to and still be secure on both sides of this platform. You know, you know, just because we're talking about data security for work doesn't mean you need to have some protection on, on your personal side as well, but it allows you to do those things. And, you know, if you protect the data, correctly there's there's no crossing over between what you're doing on the personal side and the, and the work side so every time um we onboard um somebody not every time but every time we onboard someone on my team and you know they get like the the forced you have to add this to your phone and it sort of forces through um i always get the question of something like what does that mean you guys can take my photos or does that mean you can do this and so answer that question any chance that I'm losing my personal data to my company when I bring my own device and I allow them to to put on the protective software. I mean, that's the great thing about what we do is not only with SyncDog, we don't do that, we can't do that. It is a complete separation of the work and personal, right. but you're, you're exactly right, is almost every, you know, every other solution out there is if they're allowing you to use your own device you're probably signing a document that says that company has a right to just wipe that device completely, so you're always at risk of losing that information, which just, it creates a, a fundamental mistrust between employee and corporation, and it, it just falls right in the old adage of software, is if, you're, if your business process are being molded by the limitations of the solutions you're using, there's a problem. You know, the solution should be molded to the business pro pro processes you're trying to do, and that's that's... That's where our approach. We we started the user experience and work back through security versus saying let's secure it and then force the you know the user experience based on that. Okay, guys, on to curiosity. We end every interview with a random question. So this one's pretty random. You've been given an elephant and you can't get rid of it. What do you do with it? Uh, elephant is my son's favorite animal. I keep it around as long as I can. Brian. Feed it and pet it and call your own. Did you say, okay, so you just have new pets. Yeah. All right. I already have a 200-pound dog, so it's not. <laughs> You're close. Okay. All right. Gentlemen, really appreciate you hopping aboard to speak with us, and hopefully we'll speak again in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again to the team from SyncDog for talking with us while we were out at RSA a couple weeks ago. And that's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. As always, stay curious.